Well, good morning, Village Church. Hopefully you all are doing well today. If you have your Bible, please open it to Esther, chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. My plan is to finish this book before Christmas, but the, the staff don't think I'm going to get done by Christmas, and, and patience thinks it's going to take me to March, so, so, so we'll see. So, so we're beginning a new uh, sermon series on the book of Esther this morning, and Esther is, you know, was, is one of the last books of the Bible uh, written in the Old Testament, and it's probably one of the hardest books to, to preach from, and, and the obvious reason for this is because God isn't mentioning, mentioning the book at all. No mentions of Yahweh, there's no mentions of the temple, there, there aren't any prophecies and prophets and miracles in the book, there, there, there isn't any words about the covenant faithfulness and covenant unfaithfulness. There's no words about faith and repentance, and there's no clear connections to Christ in the book. Nor does the author offer you any commentary on the moral and ethical motives of the characters in the book. The author simply gives you history in narrative form, and that makes interpreting the book very difficult. In fact, there were zero commentaries written on the book of Esther for the first seven centuries of the church. Zero. The reformer, Martin Luther, he didn't like the book. He detested it. He, he wished it wasn't even in the Bible. So what about you? What are your thoughts about the book of Esther? Have you ever read through it? Have you ever did a Bible study on it? What are your thoughts? Second Timothy three, sixteen and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, the man of God, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And that verse includes the book of Esther. It is God's word. It is profitable for Christians. And we shouldn't pass it by. And we don't pass it by. And we're going to talk through this book this fall. You see, the book of Esther... It presents life in shades of gray, not black and white. It presents life in shades of gray, not in black and white. It's going to show us that, that people and things aren't what they always appear to be on the surface. And the overall message of the book is that God is providentially sustaining his people, even in the shades of gray of life. That's the overall message of the book is God's providence. That life in shades of gray is still subject to God's providence. So if you have your Bible, Esther chapter 1, and I'm already off to a bad start. I was supposed to get through 12 verses. It's only going to get through 8. So there we go. <laughs> I know. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory, 
the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white curtains, cotton curtains, and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, purple to silver rods, marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavements, on porphyry and marble, mother apparel, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking, according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. This is the word of our God. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, as we come to the word today, we pray that you will open up our hearts and allow our hearts to be mended by the word and allow the word to penetrate those areas of our heart in which we try to close off to Jesus. And so we need you, Spirit, to take these words, to take this sermon and and to apply it to my heart and to everyone's heart that is here. Each of us, Lord, need a word from Jesus. Each of us need the truth of our God. So, Holy Spirit, you are our helper, and I pray that you will help us today. It is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. The book of Esther begins with a display of power. A display of power. And it's not a display of Yahweh's power. It's not a a display of, of Yahweh sitting upon his throne, his heavenly throne. It's not a display of his glory. Esther begins with a display of human power. Human power. And when it comes to human power, there are shades of gray in human power. Because human power can be used for good and evil. It can be used to serve self and to serve others. It can be used to build and destroy, to conquer, to liberate, to make war, to make peace, to oppress, to set free, to wound, to heal. And the human power that is on display in our text is the power of a great king and his massive empire. The author opens with the words, now this is what happened, which which means what the author is telling you has already happened in history. It has already happened in history. And his readers are now reading this. Because all the events has already happened. So he's giving them history. He's giving them unbiased facts without commentary, without judgment. And this is not fake news. It is not a whitewash history. It is not political spin. It is not right. It is not left. It is simply what had happened was, is what he's giving you. And what had happened occurs during the, the days of a king the Jews call Ahasuerus. The Greeks call him Xerxes the Great son of Darius the Great. And in 486 B.C., at the age of 36, he becomes king of Persia. And he inherits a massive empire that stretches from India to Egypt and parts of Europe. That's a lot of, a lot of countries under this one king, under this one 
throne. The text says he reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. You see, the Persian Empire is the largest and most powerful empire in the world at this time. It is the superpower at this time in history. And one man rules it all. Xerxes the Great. One man rules it all. He's the most powerful man in the world. He's the most richest man in the world. And he sits on the throne of the most powerful empire in the world. Think about that. He has all the human power one individual could possibly wield at his disposal. The power, the wealth, the empire at his beck and call. In the Persian War Court, the king holds absolute power. This is not a democracy. Power is not with the people. It's with the king. And he can use this power any way he pleases, without accountability, without question, without limits, without any consideration to how that affects other people. How, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? Now, as us, we don't live in this, we don't live in a monarchy. We live in a democracy. So we have no idea what it's like to live under the power of a king. But one person controls it all. Think about that. If America was a, a monarchy, and the president you don't like had all the power, how would that make you feel? Then that put this in the context. And here's the issue. People and nations with this kind of power can be dangerous. Dangerous. Look at history. Look at the world. Look at our country. Look what's been uncovered in Hollywood right now with people who think their power put them above law. Nothing unmasks a man like his use of power, says American writer Albert Hubbard. Nothing unmasked people like their use of power. Keep in mind, human power, again, it can be used for good and evil, used to serve self and others, used to conquer and liberate, used to make war, used to make peace, used to set free, and used to wound and heal. And there are shades of gray to it. Because in one individual, that one individual can use that power for both good and evil. I hope you understand that and see that. History shows that to be true. So how does King Xerxes use his great power? Well, in the text before us, he puts his power on display. He does so in 483 B.C. during the third year of his reign. He displays it from his royal throne in Susa. And Susa is one of the three Persian capital cities. This is where the Persian kings go during the summer months. They don't, want other, they don't want to spend the winter in the winter palace. So when it's winter in this palace, they go to Susa because it's that summer palace. So it's summertime in the Persian Empire, and that's where the king is residing. And so he throws his royal free feast, a feast that he gives for all of his leaders and his servants, his military leaders, his political leaders, and the Persian elite. So not everyone can come to this feast. It's only for the important people within the kingdom. And attending this feast is not optional. You are expected to come. Because when the king summons you, what, should, what is your only response when the king calls? Yes, sir, I'll be right there. That's your only response. And they come and they stand before him. In verse 3 it says, In the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces, 
were before him. They were before him, standing before the king to bow before him, to pay homage before him. They were before him as people under him. The author says he gives his feast for the people, for his leaders. That's a good thing, right? The king wanting to show his appreciation for those who work for him. He has the power and the means to do so. But what happens during this feast reveals something else. It reveals shades of gray in human power because there's more going on here than what appears. Because the feast is really about the king. It's really about him. For six months, 180 days, he shows off his power. And that's a long time to party with the king. Six months, a half a year, he gives his banquet. And he shows off his power, his greatness, his glory. He puts on an exhibit for, of his greatness, a public display of his awesomeness, his splendor, his riches, and his wealth. This is what the king of Persia is doing. A long party, a long after party. And why? Why must he party for 180 days? Things ain't what they appear to be. Their shades are gray. On the surface, the feast appears to be for the leaders, but in reality, it's for the king. You see, King Xerxes, he didn't just inherit the, the power and wealth of the Persian Empire He, when he ascended the throne. He also inherited a conflict that the empire had with another nation. And this is where history, actual history going on in the world, helps us understand in Scripture. Because his father, Darius, entered into conflict with the Greeks. And he did so in 492 B.C. And in 490, his dad was defeated by the armies of, of Athens. And so and before his dad died, he planned to conquer all of Greece. And now that task is in the hands of his son, Xerxes the Great. Some scholars believe that this feast that he gives corresponds with a great war council that happened also in 483 B.C., a great war council in which he plans to, to come up with a plan to invade Greece for a second time. That also happened in the third year of his reign. And so if, if that is taking place at this feast, this whole feast, the whining and the dining and the wooing of these leaders is for one particular purpose. He needs their support to go to war. He needs their support to go to war. And one Greek historian says he promises to reward them with all sorts of riches if they support his campaign to invade Greece. Look at my empire. For 180 days, look at my empire. For 180 days, look at my power. For 180 days, look at my throne. For 180 days, look at my riches. I am able to give you what, I can, what I'm saying I'm going to give you if you support my cause. I have the means to do it. So trust me and follow me, and I'll reward you with riches beyond you can imagine. And he has the power to do it. The king power is on display. It's on full display, 3D, 4D, however you want to classify it. But he's not done. He's not done displaying his power. He also displays his power in another feast. Not just for the leaders, but this time it's for the people. It includes the citizens of the kingdom. 
He says, when these days were completed, the king gave a feast for all the people in Susa the citadel, both great and small. And his queen also gave a feast for the women in another palace. On the surface, this too appears to be just for the people, the important people, the unimportant people. But this again, it's only about the king. It's really about him. Because for seven days, he displays his hospitality, his beautiful courtyard in the palace, decorated to the nines. And so what that tells me is that he's going to let these people party like royalty for seven days. People who probably have never been to the kingdom, they get to party like royalty for seven days, get a taste of the good life for seven days. He even displays the generosity by having, them, by having an open bar. And he doesn't, he doesn't serve them the cheap wine, the watered-down wine. He gives them the good wine, the royal wine. And it was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. He serves it in the fancy uh, royal glasses, unlimited. And these men that are in this banquet, they are eating like kings and not even knowing that he's buttering them up for war to support his cause. What better way to gain the support of the people? Entertain them to death and give them stuff and they'll support you to the end. Tell them what they want to hear. Give them what they want. And they'll follow you to the ends of the earth. And the king knows it. There ain't no party like a king irks his party. He wines them. He dines them. He entertains them. He gives them a taste of the good life. To gain their loyalty. To gain their support. The king's power is on display in these verses. That's what the author is showing us. Just how great a power that this man had. And the things that he's able to do. Power to give these type of feasts. The, the power to summon all these leaders from over 127 provinces. And they all come. The power to display his own glory. His own wealth. His own greatness. The power to get these leaders and the people to support his cause. The power to promise I give you all these great riches if you support me. The power to entertain his people. And he used, he's going to use the same power to conquer another nation. Shades of gray in human power. Not just in Persia, but it's true right now. The world is filled with people who have various degrees of human power. And the way they use that power will always be in shades of gray. Look at history. Look globally what's happening in the world. Look what's happening even within our own nation. People who have power use it because they have the power and they use it for good, for evil, to liberate, to conquer, to make war, to make peace, to serve self, to serve others, to build, to destroy, to wound, to heal, to hurt, to help, to deceive, to enlighten. They use it. The human power that King Xerxes possessed, again, is foreign to us. Because we live in a democratic nation where they say the power belongs to the people, but that's debatable. But again, in this country, the power belongs to him, to the one man. His Persian name means king of heroes. That's what his Persian name means. And in the building that he erected, 
that there was a, there was words written on it about himself. And in, in this building that he erected, it says this, the great God, Ara, Ara Mazda, he is who gave, gave this world to man. He's given it to mankind. He has given life to mankind. He has made Earthsea's king, both king of the people, lawgiver of the people. I am Earthsea's the king, the great king, king of kings, king of the many people countries, supporter also of the great world. Earthsea's is the man, okay? No one at this time is greater than him on earth. Is the point that the author is trying to show you in these words. The boss, and he knows he's the boss, and the people know he's the boss. Even the people of Israel know he's the boss at this time on earth because they're under his thumb as well at this time. And so the question that comes to mind is, where in the world is Yahweh? Where is he? Where is Yahweh's power and presence? in the midst of an earthly king who calls himself king of kings. Where is he? Does human power overshadow the power of our God? Because you see how this book starts. It, ain't, it doesn't start talking about the greatness of Yahweh. It's telling you the greatness of a human king and how good he has it and how much power he wields in his hands. Is his power greater than the power of your God? These are important questions. Because the easy answer is, no, Yahweh is always in control. But is that true in the places where you really live? It's easy to say that when you ain't under the thumb of oppression. It's easy to say that when you're not under the thumb of a bad king. But if you're under the thumb of a tyrant, that question means something different. You start to wonder. Where is God? Because at times it feels like he's silent. I don't know if you ever felt that way, but sometimes it feels that way. It feels like he's not there. It feels like he's not in control. And it feels like God is the one in the sunken place and not me. And you sometimes wonder, is God even woke? And let's just be honest. The way people use human power impacts the lives of other people. And sometimes people feel like they're just pawns to the power that be. I don't know if you ever felt that way, but I'm sure there are people that do feel that way. Because human power is real. And people who have it, they use it. They use it. King Xerxes, this is what I love about history. Because pride comes before the fall, and that's true. He gets his support. To go to war. And three years later, in 480 BC, he personally leads the second invasion into Greece. And he goes to Greece with one of the largest armies ever assembled in the ancient world. Now, the numbers vary. Some say it was 2 million, some say it was 800,000. Regardless, he has more men than the Greeks have, he, he outnumbers them. And so, if you're a betting man, you're going to bet with the king of Persia to win because he has more people. He has all the money, all the resources, and all the people. And on paper, that means he's going to win. He may win if he's God, but he ain't God. 
Because in, 40, in 479 B.C., he had been defeated by the Greeks. And the treasuries of the Persian Empire almost depleted. And what does that mean, Pastor? It means human power has its limits, is what it means. That human power, no matter how great it may be, it isn't eternal. It does not last forever. It has limits. Human power, no matter what it promises to give you, can be taken away. So we have to be wise on who we align ourselves with. Human power, no matter how good it is, isn't the center. Human power will always be a house of cards. And we need to understand that. Look at history. What does history show you? There's only one king of kings. That's what history shows us. That just like this nation fell, all nations that, that claim to have all this power, you cannot hold all that power. It's sand in your hands. And as God's people, our trust is never in princes and kings. It's never in princes and kings. It's never in human power. It's never even trying to gain all the human power because it can always be taken away. Read, if you read history, and what does history teach you? That God is the one that's on the throne. Man is not. No matter how great he is or how much power he wills. Any, like, like we say in college football, on any given Saturday, anybody can lose. In any given day, any man can be dethroned from his castle. Any given day. There's one verse from a hymn that says, from Beams of Heaven, that says, Harder yet may be the fight. Right may often yield to might. Wickedness a while may reign. Satan's cause may seem to gain. But there is a God that rules above with a hand of power and a heart of love. And if I'm right, he'll fight my battles and I will have peace some day. So for God's people, here and I, even our brothers and sisters who are suffering persecution in other parts of the world, we have to never lose sight of who is actually sustaining us in this world. And as Christians, particularly for us as Christians in America, we need to know that we're not being sustained just because we live in a great country. It is our God that is sustaining us, not the country that we live in. And I enjoy living here. But we've got to understand who's actually in control, who is actually ruling us and governing us. It is our God. It's not our nation that we live in. It's not the person who's in the over office. It is God. The one true king of kings. And he is never silent. Never silent. Never silent. He is always at work. Even in the midst of human power, he's at work. He sits on his throne and he does what he pleases. And his providence is at work in the lives of his people, even though that providence may be unseen and invisible to you at the time. Because if he is not at work in our life, then, then we are utterly hopeless. Then we are just pawns to the powers that be. If God is not in control, either he's in control or he's not. Either King Erxes are in control or God is in control. Those are our only two options. And where do you, what do you really believe? What do you really believe? 
as his people. Just because we may be on the margins of society doesn't mean we're losing. Because historically, the church has always been on the margins of society, and it still thrives. Please know that. Look again, the suffering church, the persecuted church that, that suffers around the world, it's still growing. It still grows. Why does it grow? Because there's a God who reigns above. Because there's a God who is on his throne. Because there's a God who is able. Because there's a God whose providence rules over all things. And so for us, we got to hold on to that same truth that our God is sustaining us. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the greatest example of God's providence at work in the midst of human power. Because it was humans that crucified Jesus. Okay, all right. Okay. And they crucified him to shut him up. They crucified him to silence him. They crucified him to get rid of him. But what they didn't know is they were fulfilling God's purpose that he um, created before the world began. That Christ would die as a substitute for our sin. So they, what they did was for evil, but what God turned it into was a blessing for those who were lost in their sin. So if God can use that for the good of his people, he can also use what we currently go through for our good as well. Because his providence will have its way. Mankind will never frustrate the plans of God. If we could, then we would be God. We would be God. If we can frustrate God's plan. If I can stop God from doing what he's doing, then God is no longer God. I'm God. If a nation can stop God from what he's doing, then God's no longer God, then that nation is God. If a king can stop God from what he's doing, then God's no longer God, then that particular king is God. It's not both and. Either God's in control or he's not in control. Either he is sovereign or he's not. Either his providence is real or it's not. We're just, either we're just pawns or we are in the hands of a God who loves us. That's black and white. That's not shades of gray in those statements. That's black and white. If you doubt it, remember the crucifixion of Christ. Remember what they yelled, crucify him. We'll take the, this guy instead of this guy. But they didn't know they were fulfilling God's plan. Fulfilling God's plan. And so this table, this Lord's table here, is a reminder That our God is always able. It should be a reminder to you that if he made a way to deal with your sin problem by sacrificing his only son, how would he not make a way for you now? Think about that. If he made a way for you to be made right with him by giving up his only son for his enemies, okay, you weren't his friend, 
You weren't his road dog. You weren't his party person. You weren't his boy. You weren't his girl. You were his enemy. And how will he not also through Christ meet you where you are now? Remember his faithfulness. Remember his goodness. And that's what this meal is all about. God's goodness to people who don't deserve it. God's grace to people who deserve judgment. That's what it's about. And this meal is for all those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Those who have come to receive him as his Lord and Savior. If you have done that, then this meal is for you. For your spiritual nourishment in Christ. And the Spirit is one who uses this meal to nourish you. He does it. To nourish you as his people. Now, if you're here, you don't have faith in Christ, I consider it an honor to have you here. And if you have questions of what it means to know Jesus, please see me at the end of the service. And I will be glad to sit down with you and to share the good news of the gospel with you. Parents, we do ask that the kids with you uh, abstain from the elements until they've been invited to the table by the church that you attend or by the elders of this church. And now the kids. I need all the little kids. So this is my favorite part of communion because I get to talk to the kids here. And I want each and every one of you to know Jesus loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Even when you mess up, he loves you. Even when you fall short, he loves you. He loves you. And he died on the cross for your sins so that you can be reconciled to God. Coming back to him in fellowship and communion. And as your pastor, it's my prayer that each and every one of you will come to saving faith in Christ. And when you do, you get to partake of this meal for your mom and dad. So what I want you to take from this meal, Jesus loves you. He loves you. So I want to take a few moments now and ask the Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts to receive um, the Lord's table and I'll, I'll proceed through the, oh, the officers who are helping. Come forward. I almost forgot. I can't fence the table and give out the elements. Come forward. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for this time forth and evermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please greet one another.